Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. We've brought you interviews with exceptional leaders, some alive, some not. We're about to do one on Sam Walton. My goodness, what a business leader. We've done John Wooden. Heck, we did one on an institution, West Point, celebrating its birthday with the military historians from that great American institution. We've also had Chick-fil-A's Vice President of Talent, Deanne Turner, and also Andy McKenna, who, well, what a story he had getting up and growing up to be chairman at McDonald's and steadying a ship, uh, a monstrous ship, uh, one of the big American companies and food providers. And you can listen to all of our on-leadership interviews at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, we're fortunate to be joined by Dina Dwyer-Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, a family of 14 franchise brands all in the service industry, and all of which you can find at their great one-stop platform, GetNeighborly.com. For all of your service needs, their 2,800 franchisees worldwide are hosted there. And that's right, folks, 2,800. Their service brands include AirServe, Glass Doctor, The Grounds Guys, Five Star Painting, Molly Made, Mr. Appliance, Mr. Electric, Mr. Handyman, Mr. Rooter, and I could go on and on, the Window Genie. Collectively, they make more than 3 million customer calls a year and account for more than $1.4 billion in system-wide sales. And you might also know their leader, Dina, from her appearance on the hit TV show, Undercover Boss. Dina, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, it is my pleasure. Thank you. Well, we always start by asking every guest, tell us about where you were born, that town, that place, Talk about your parents, the people who influenced you, and then if there are any early mentors as well or experiences that shaped you. Well, born in Stanford, Connecticut, I only lived there, though, I think the first year of my life because my father and mother were both raised in New York City. So uh, with five siblings, I quickly moved to the city, and uh, the six of us probably stayed in New York until early elementary school. My father was in the entertainment industry after he had put himself through college and um, owned a newspaper delivery route. But he actually uh, managed the band Steam, who produced the uh, first hit record for the song Na 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 Na, Hey Hey Hey. So yep. you guys remember that? Uh-huh. I won't sing it for you, though, because I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll scare people away. I won't either. <laughs> so, yeah, so he followed the entertainment industry out into uh, Thousand Oaks, California. So, you know, we went from New York City to right outside of uh, Hollywood, basically, and uh, learned quickly that uh, raising a family in in that part of the world wasn't the right timing uh, for us. But he went to a franchise show, and he learned about uh, a company called Success Motivation Institute based here in Waco, Texas. And he started having us, as uh, his six kids, listen to these motivational and leadership cassette tapes. Uh, maybe some of your listeners don't remember cassette tapes, but you might, Lee. Um, I know I do. Yep. And we were asked to listen to those uh, cassettes six times a week because that whole thing about repetition is the mother of skill. And, you know, we thought it was kind of corny as, as young elementary school kids. Yet he gave us a nice carrot with a, an additional allowance if we could answer his questions. <laughs> so I remember being all over it once he threw that carrot out. And what I didn't realize is that there were so many good things that he was planting into our minds at such an early age that would benefit us as we grew up into you know adults and, and uh, become hopefully good citizens of our communities. 
So we moved from uh, outside of L.A. to Waco, Texas, when he was invited to be the vice president of one of the uh, Success Motivation Institute companies and worked for a wonderful guy named Paul Meyer, which is uh, where we learned all about goal setting, and, and we could carry that through here at Dwyer today. And so my father uh, raised us working. So he said he didn't have much to offer uh, when we were young. My mother was the one who had a lot to offer, and, of course, she was the most amazing stay-at-home mom anybody could ever want. Um, I call her mother Teresa. Her, her, her name is Teresa, but she's, she's a gem. So he put us to work at the age of 12 and 13. And uh, my first real job was at a car wash he had built, full-service car wash. And my job was to work on the gas pumps selling to the customers. So I'd sell them a car wash, but I, I learned add-on sales there. I had to learn how to sell the polish waxes and the detail jobs. And uh, I always wanted to work at the back, though. I thought it would be more fun to be back there with the cute guys deal- detailing the cards. But he said, no, 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 no. You're staying up front for a couple of reasons. <laughs> but one is I want you to learn sales. Yep. So, uh, you know, went to work every week, and there were no slumber parties for me back then, Lee. And by the way, what a thing to teach someone young, because if he teaches you to be fearless and to have fun selling, you won't ever get to that age where you're afraid to sell. And I think he was sort of taking advantage of the fact that you were young and that when you're young, it's, it's easier to deal with rejection. And you might not even get it rejected as often because you're young, Dina. You're absolutely right. And I remember him saying to us, Every no is that much closer to the yes. So I kind of just got used to, you know what, I'm getting closer to the yes. And I was very fortunate, you know, to be raised by uh, a couple of parents who uh, planted such good things into my mind and and showed such belief for me. And and I look back and I think they didn't have the tools we have today to kind of keep up with our kids, you know, like cell phones and all of that. And, And yet they did their best to raise us. Um, and, and then just trusted us. And we went out there with some skills that, uh, again, I'm just fortunate that I was put into those situations and, and put to work at a young age. You bet. And, Dina, you, you were taught upselling at a very early age. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Be yeah. still my heart. <laughs> 13. At 13. <laughs> at 13, the dad saying, hey, what about that carbonu wax or whatever it is? Or, you know, what about that special 10-package 10, 10 yeah. deal? That's right. It's so great. It's a full detail job, inside and out. You are very, you're very lucky to have had the parents you had, Dina. It's a, you don't want to talk about a leg up. It's much more than a leg up when you've got parents who not only raise you properly, but work hard at instilling values that can carry you forward for a long time. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dina Dwyer Owens. She's the co-chair of the Dwyer Group. And my goodness, 2,800 franchisees worldwide are hosted on her site, getneighborly.com. They do $1.4 billion in system-wide sales and do 3 million customer calls a year. That's a whole lot of customers to keep track of. When we come back, more with our conversation with Dina Dwyer Owens. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our On Leadership series.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our On Leadership series with Dina Dwyer Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group. And Dina, you work for your dad, Don, and you've since taken over a significant and significantly grown his company, the Dwyer Group. But tell us what you learned from watching him, and if you maybe give an example or two of things, specific things you saw, because for all the parents listening, they don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do, and we've heard this over and over again from our best leaders. So what did you learn observing your dad? One of the greatest lessons, Lee, was never being afraid to ask. I, had, uh, I was helping him run a real estate company that we had here in Waco, Texas in the late 80s during the savings and loans crisis, and I was responsible for, we had four apartment communities, and they were not, they were not occupied. I mean, they were probably sitting at a 60% occupancy rate, which didn't pay the mortgage. And he said to me, I want you to go to the bank, and I want you to let them know that we need to have them discount the mortgage by half. And I was so mad at him, Lee. I said, what? You know, here we're a values-based company, and you're asking me to, to ask the banker to reduce your mortgage in half when you agreed to pay that. He said, Dina, I know I agreed to pay it. I, could, I, I would pay it if I could, but we, nobody expected the savings and loans crisis. And I'm in a situation where I either need to get them to work with us Otherwise, I'm going to give the property to them, and I don't want to do that either. But these are my choices. So get with the banker and have the discussion. And I went home, you know, just under my breath, did not like my father at all. But I went and met with this banker. I had a face-to-face, honest conversation. Here's the situation. We don't want to give the property back, but we need help. We need relief. To my shock, within a a two-week period, he said, let me get back to you. Just the fact that he was going to go think about it shocked me. Right. Let me get back to you. Got back to me and he said, we appreciate you guys willing to, to do what you can. And we're not going to discount it 50%, but we're going to discount the note by 40%. And here's a few other things that we're going to require from you uh, in doing that. So what a lesson, Lee. You know, I, I, again, I, I just was embarrassed to even have to go ask the question. But my father would rather have worked it out than given the property back to the bank. That's yep. the last thing the bank wanted, too, was another property. You bet. And, and doing hard things and having hard conversations uh, is, is, is hard. That's why you don't want to do them. And your dad, your dad had you do them. And you didn't expect that result, Tina. I mean, that's the key. Your dad was thinking that was Shocked. possible. But you had, no, you had no, no thought that that was going to work out. You're right. I was absolutely shocked. So that's a huge lesson in my life. Um, and, and to do it all with respect, you know, again, the Dwyer Group's a values-guided uh, company, and, you know, you always treat people with complete respect, even having those tough conversations, or especially, especially. I should say, you should always treat them with respect, but especially. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you one other thing, and my dad taught me this, and it was, son, if you want to meet a person, call them, you'd be shocked at what the answer might be. And I said, well, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And I'd wanted to meet William F. Buckley, I'm a young college journalist. He goes, call him up, send him your tear sheet. What do you got to lose? Next thing you know, I'm eating dinner at William F. Buckley's house. He said, come on over, kid. And so sometimes if you don't ask, you're not going to get the answer you want. Yeah, knocking the door shall be opened, right? Knocking the door. You never know what will happen. Dina, your dad dies suddenly at the early age of 60. And he's the leader. He's the patriarch. He's taught you all what to do. Uh, First of all, what was that like to lose your dad so fast, it sounds like, here? And so unexpectedly yeah. and so early. So you got to get over the grief of that while simultaneously having to pivot, and hopefully in his honor, pivot and, and make what he did better. Talk about those things. Yeah, the good news is he and I were great friends. Uh, we spent a lot of time, of course, in business. I, I learned so much 
from him, but we'd go on these long walks and you know, mostly talk about business until I had my, my first child, and then he began to see there's more to life than just business. But it was a shock to our organization, Lee. He had just taken the company public in 1993. And, you know, so all these people are buying into Don Dwyer's vision, and then we, we lost him. So we, we had to hunker down. Of course, there were a lot of things to get done because he was a true entrepreneur that had way too many things going on uh, on his desk with, with not a professional team around him helping him with all those things. So there were years of, um, of cleanup and uh, work that we had to get done, but we, we said to ourselves, we will not let this company uh, fall. You know, we're going we're gonna to pick it up. We're going to do whatever it takes. And I think that was a blessing in disguise because it kept us very busy during a time that we could have been uh, – we were sad, but we didn't get distracted because we knew the most important thing we had to do is make sure we were taking care of our, our franchisees, our employees, our shareholders, and our customers. And that's, that's what Don would have wanted. Yeah, and, and then you're, in the end, the grief can turn into just honoring your dad. And I've seen this happen with founder companies. And the family just says, hey, let's pick up where dad left off. Let's carry on his legacy. Um, and that means that in the end that the parent raised the kids right, too. Because some kids, it's some, some, some founders of companies leave a mess on their hands because they didn't spend time with their kids inculcating the values. They're so busy building their companies that they sort of neglect their families. And it, it doesn't sound like that was your dad. Yeah, you know, that he died, the company was only 13 years old when he died, and now we're 36 years old. And then that's a testament to, to him, Dina. And, and so what, what was his vision? And then you stumble on this. And by the way, as we all know from founders or really brilliant, dynamic leaders, they're doing a lot of stuff you don't even know about. So your dad's dead, and you, you're going on that desk and going, oh, I didn't know we were in that business. Oh, I didn't know about that. Um, how much of, of that was there? And then talk about how you took his vision and then ultimately had to carry it forward with your own and your own new leadership's vision, because that has to happen. Well, he wanted to have a collection of franchise companies basically serving the same customer base, making it you know, easier on the customer, and at the same time giving franchisees the opportunity to own more than one, one brand. So that was his big, that was his big vision, and, and we knew that because uh, he, he always shared uh, what his, his goals were, and that was something um, he probably achieved 100 years of life in his 60 lead because he was so clear and so driven about what his goals were. So that was a big, the big picture. So when he passed away, you know, there, were, there were lots of things left on his desk, but what we had to do was say, how do we get there? How do we accomplish that? Because he was going down a couple of different bunny trails because he'd get excited about maybe a white-collar franchise opportunity. We have, we're best at home services. So our franchise family is all um, home services that are focused on repairing, maintaining, and enhancing homes. We do businesses as well, but the main focus is on homes. So we had to just stay very clear about that. And the other thing we had to do that we knew was the foundation for the success of the company was to keep the, the code of values alive and kicking. And we took his original code of values, we operationalized them, and today we call it living richly. So we're living with respect, integrity, customer focus, and having fun. And we have very specific, uh, you might call them values statements, below each one of those four core areas that we focus on we we've created a system around it we were in the franchising business and you take what's most important in franchising and and you create a system around it so they can be replicated and that's what a franchise company does so we did that with our values so anything else that was sitting around on his desk that we said does it fit with the values does it fit with the focus of being um the world's largest home service provider you know with this collection of companies uh making your lives easier as a consumer 
and I and, think that, and we had to just start selling stuff off. You bet. And, and, and again, the focus is so important. And I think one of the underlying values was your values proposition. And second, that once you're in that door, whatever that core relationship is with the customer, you're now trading other services based on the values and the value of that initial relationship. And that was your dad's insight. You're in that door. Let's now take advantage of the fact that we have a customer who trusts us and a customer who likes us. Let's sell them other stuff in their house. And let's make it easier for the customer. You know, and, and the world is so much busier than what it was when he came up with this whole idea. Yep. Uh, so so GetNeighborly.com is that solution. And, and, you know, Lee, it took us 36 years to get there, and it's because we had to have the scale. We had to have the, the, the number of franchise locations that could take care of the consumers in their local markets. Um, and with the values as a foundation for our success, we've attracted the right people to be out there serving you as a consumer. And that was the next thing. And, and we got about a minute and a half here, but talk about the people, people listening, wanting to build anything, a church, build a, build a better PTA. How do you recruit your people? And to what degree does your values-based proposition and getting that right inside the culture of your company attract the right people to begin with? How much of that is the core of your recruitment? Uh, yeah, they say that, uh, I can't remember if it was Peter Drucker who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I will tell you that our values have attracted the best employees in the franchising world uh, to, 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 to Waco, Texas, right? So we get people to come to Waco, Texas, because they want to they work for a company like Dwyer, because we've worked so hard to, to be that value's got a leader. We are not perfectly, but we people know we give it our best. We try to reach that high bar every day. And, and the same thing goes with our franchisees. It's having that clarity of who we are and then aligning ourselves, not with the guy who's got the most money. They've got to have potential, and they've got to have desire, and they've got to be aligned with our values. Yep. So that's what we found, is, is not let ourselves get caught up in the things that don't fit us best. What fits us best is people who are aligned with our values. And we have a team aligned with our values. We can achieve anything. Yeah, and when you're, fight, when you're fighting over values, this isn't good at all. And I love that line, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And by the way, you almost everybody we have on the air that has done any business at all, big, small, quotes Drucker at some point or another, which I'm going to now let my staff know we've got to do an hour on Drucker and talk to all the people that Drucker influenced. Because my goodness, Dina, it's, it's really unbelievable. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories on Leadership. Continues after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and we continue our conversation with Dina Dwyer Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group. And my goodness, the amount of customer visits, 3 million customer contacts a year, just a crazy number, and $1.4 billion in revenue. And so we all have a lot to learn from Dina, and I'm sure she's out there learning herself. But one of the things that I think taught her the most was an accident, or maybe not an accident, who knows how it happened, but an appearance on a show that NBC produces called Undercover Boss. Adina, talk about that experience. <laughs> a couple of my friends had been on uh, Undercover Boss, and I'm thinking to myself, now, wait a second. How can they be on it and, and Dwyer's not been on it? So uh, getting back to what my lesson was from Don Dwyer is never be afraid to ask. So I actually reached out to um, Studio Lambert, the producers, 
and said, yeah, I think you guys should look at Dwyer Group. And they didn't know who Dwyer Group was, but they knew Mr. Rear, they knew Mr. Electric and Mr. Appliance and the brand names. And I said, look, we're a values-based company, and you know, out of all the episodes you've had air so far, only two of the bosses even mentioned the word values. So I'd like to go undercover to find out if the values really working on the front lines. And I'm a woman, and we know that your viewers are aching for people other than white guys <laughs> as the <Yep>. CEOs. <laughs> so they, uh, they jumped all over it, and we were blessed to be on that episode. And I think a couple, a couple of the big lessons is we have such an amazing family of franchisees and frontline team members that work for our franchisees who are out there every day working hard on behalf of our customers. I, it, it's so hard to lose sight of the hard work it takes to come into somebody's home and fix this stuff. Uh, like climbing into an attic to fix a, a heater. Yep. You know, it's it's just amazing the work that they do. So that was just a, a reminder to me of we got to make sure that these people know how much we appreciate them. And then the second thing was is how willing um, Undercover Boss, the studio and CBS, were to really show me the real authentic person that I am and, and allow me to talk about my faith, follow me into church, bring me back home to the church at the end of the episode, and that, again, has just been a surprise that I didn't expect. God, God had a plan, though, Lee. <laughs> yep, yep. And by the way, credit to NBC, because a lot of times, at least in the popular media, the, very often the, the, the faith element of what makes someone great will be eliminated. I watched a long, uh, long hour on John Wooden on ESPN. They never mentioned his faith. Meanwhile, the seminal episode in his life, a Purdue coach gives him a cross because John Wooden had a little bit of a temper. And he said, John, here's what I did, son. I had this wooden cross, and this is why I never had an argument with a ref, or not a bad one. I didn't get thrown out of games, and I behaved myself on the floor. Whenever I would feel tense, I'd clutch that cross in my hand. Here you go. And John Wooden held that cross in his hand on that bench, wow. and his, his church life was critical to his success. And boom, there's this story about John Wooden and what made him the man, the leader, the winner he was. And he didn't care about winning. He cared about integrity. He cared about love. He cared about serving his boys, and he cared most of all about serving his God out of the equation. So credit and kudos to NBC for doing that. By, by the way, Dean, he, CBS. Oh, CBS. That's CBS. right. CBS. Yeah. Right. And, and here were some of the things that, w- w- that I found astounding. Here were some of the things that folks said. Your company has renewed my faith in corporate America. Thank you for being so transparent and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and genuine. Another, it's not often that you get to see a company that operates with values and ethics. Here's one last one. It's not often that you get to see a company that operates with values and ethics. And this happened on and on, including the word love getting thrown around. And people saying, boy, I love that company. Boy, does that help our bottom line and our businesses when people love us, Dina? Uh, of course. And, and it, just today I got an email from, actually it came in late last night, from a, a viewer who watched a rerun episode of Undercover Boss and just you know, commenting on how, so impressed by how we showed compassion and generosity to our employees. And I believe if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of you, is what this viewer says. And then she goes on to say that God has strategically placed me in her life, and she's wanting to do good for others, and she's got a, a business dream in her heart that she uh, wants to start. And the show helped um, inspire her. So, you know, people think that love, again, is one of those words, kind of like values. It's just kind of warm and mushy. But you know what? We have to love our people. We have to love our customers, and that doesn't mean it's the uh, the intimate kind of love that we have with our spouses. Right. It's a kind of love where you're you're there to serve and give your best. And when you serve and give your best, it is amazing what shows up. Uh, you know, something wonderful always happens, Lee. 
Indeed, indeed. And, and by the way, you write in Values, Inc., that the Dwyer Group isn't the only company that incorporates values like love into their daily mission field, and yet you also note that 95% of companies with a code of values don't use them, and that 69% of workers are dissatisfied with the ethical climate of their company. Talk about that. It's a shame. And the, 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 the 95% of companies in North America that do nothing with their values once they're written is very unfortunate. And I think here's the issue. I think those leaders want to run good companies. They want to have the values be part of their organizations. They haven't figured out a way to incorporate them. And that's why I wrote Values, Inc., Values Incorporated. It comes down to what franchising does every day. Take what's most important in your business, create a system around it so it's replicatable. So whether Don Dwyer's here or not, the values need to live on. And guess what? They have lived on. And whether Dina Dwyer owns us here or Mike Biddle, our CEO, who's, by the way, doing an incredible job, whether we're here or not, it shouldn't matter to the future success of Dwyer Group because it's really about those values staying alive, not me staying alive or him staying alive. It's the values staying alive, but you've got to have a system around that. And in our case, it's a matter of reviewing the values at the beginning of every meeting of three or more franchisees or employees. And it may be that we review all 15 values. We've got a lot because <laughs> we want to make sure people are clear. Or maybe we talk about one, one particular value that we know we need to get better at. And what does that conversation sound like? What are the core values you find yourself returning to the most out of the company's values? Are there, is, are there a core set? Well, yes. And you, know, we're in the, you made me smile when you asked that question because when we first introduced this to our employees, we gamified the values and we, we created the beep game. So we, we gave our employees the, the newly operationalized values, and one of them was speaking calmly and respectfully without profanity or sarcasm. And, Lee, we're in the trades businesses. <laughs> and not all tradespeople use profanity, but you know what? Yep. Some of them do, mm-hmm. and the customers don't appreciate it. So when we played that beep game around the Dwyer Group for 90 days, this was 20 years ago, uh, it was like the Roadrunner was racing through our <laughs> building. So you know, that's one of those values that we, we have worked hard on, and it's just amazing how people can change. And somebody who's had a bad habit didn't even realize they had a bad habit uh, of using profanity has now cleaned up their language. Yeah, and by the way, Dina, turning it into fun rather than some fiat from the top and, and you know, having award systems, bonus systems, I mean, that, that can really help, too. I mean, how we get our people to change is as important and perhaps the reason why they change, the how. And, and what is the how there? I mean, obviously, you're talking a lot about it, but what are the incentives you use? Because you know, there's the old line that you'll always get the behavior you incentivize. Uh, so talk about that, too. Well, it, I think the how is uh, they, they see that leadership, first of all, is not just uh, talking about it. They're really living it uh, and, and open to getting feedback. Uh, and just starting with that game, initially, we basically said, you guys beep us. Let us know where we're falling down on the job. And the employees loved that. We just had an award. Speaking of awards, we just had an awards ceremony about a week and a half ago. And we do have an award for what we call Living Rich. And the employees nominate one another. When they, when they see an employee who's really stepping up and living up to the values, they nominate them. So this annual award winner is somebody who came from the ranks of being nominated by their peers. And so they win. You know, they get a really nice bonus. Uh, and in our case, they get a parking space for a year, which is a really uh, valuable piece of real estate here with our company growing at more than 50% the last uh, two and a half, three years. So we do have recognition programs uh, for that. And... and when we do a company-wide meeting, you know, we kick off every meeting with the Code of Values, and we give employees the opportunity to get up and recite the values by heart, with heart, and they do it with pride. They get up in front of a group of sometimes 300 people and recite the values. 
That's great, Dina. This is good news for people who are listening, too, for a family, for a church, for any organization. And we believe that we're delivering these On Leadership series to you folks because we can all lead in our lives, and we all have the capacity to do that. And it's just a, it's a matter of learning how to do it, and that's why we do what we do here. On Leadership, Dina Dwyer-Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, a family of 14 franchise brands. GetNeighborly.com is where you need to go to find out more. And my goodness, uh, a, a young lady who turned into a mom, who turned into a mover, and ultimately a leader herself taking over where her dad left off. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories with this great American story about an American leader. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is our final segment in an hour that's passed too fast. Dina Dwyer owns the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, a family of 14 franchise brands, 28 franchisees worldwide, 1.4 billion in sales. Go to getneighborly.com. That's getneighborly.com to learn more. And Dean is also the author of countless numbers of books, author of Live Rich and Values, Inc., She's appeared on Undercover Boss, so she has an agent, and she's a, a TV star, too, and she wears many hats. But tonight, today, we're talking about leadership. And, Dina, let's just drill down just a little bit more on this values proposition. Uh, Jeffrey Skilling of Enron, David Barger of JetBlue. Two very different guys, two very different outcomes. Talk a little about these two stories, if you could. Gosh, it's it's such a... <laughs> My heart gets heavy when I think about the Jeffrey Skilling situation, how greed uh, gets in the way of people living happy and successful lives. And so it's unfortunate with Enron that they did have a, a set of clear, clearly written values. In fact, uh, every employee who came in before they were even hired had to read those values, and you know, then the supervisors kind of just shoved them off like, yeah, well, sometimes we apply them, sometimes we don't. And sure enough, that was the case. So... Some companies um, put them out there in a way that they're trying to look good to the uh, the outside world, yep. and yet inside they're uh, they're unhealthy. They're an unhealthy uh, organization, and those businesses will end up failing. You know, they're not going to live thirty six years like we are, and we are far from from being a perfect company. But I think about JetBlue and David Barcher. You know, and you you take care of those customers who are stuck on a, a tarmac for hours. And for a CEO to personally be waiting there um, to hand over uh, another round-trip ticket for your next trip because this one was not what you hoped it would be is incredible. Yep. And as unhappy and, and frustrated as the folks might have been sitting on that tarmac, at the end of the day, guess what they're saying about that company? They did what was right. And by the way, Dina, you know, this sounds like to a lot of people listening common sense, too. I mean, you're thinking, well, of course you should do that. You know, your parents always told you, do the right thing. And I think what happens is somewhere along the way, you go to business school. Somewhere along the way, you look at a lot of spreadsheets. Somewhere along the way, you start to take that shareholders meeting, that quarterly meeting so seriously that it all chips away at your values. And then the value becomes, did we deliver a profit with every single move we make? And that can't be the organizing ethos of a life. 
Yeah. I love the phrase, and I can't tell you who quoted it, but it's never too late to do what's right. And, and then I think about Patrick Lencioni, you know, who um, talks about when properly practiced, values inflict pain, <laughs> that values can actually uh, limit an organizational strategic and operational freedom. And here at the Dwyer Group, I, I just am so proud when I'm sitting in a, whether it's a board meeting or a growth team meeting, and, and we talk about an acquisition opportunity. And our, our CEO says, you know, gosh, it'd be fun to own that business, but I don't think it's right because one of the reasons we'd want to own it is because it's an opportunity to get referrals uh, from the customers of that business. But I don't think that's, that's the right way to treat those customers. I think we should just forego this, this opportunity. You know, you just sit back and you go, this is how it's supposed to be done. Yep, that's how it's supposed to be done. We did an hour on Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot. And there was a story about how one, one guy working on an aisle in some Home Depot had, had told a customer he didn't need a new toilet. He just needed this, like, 80-cent part, and he sort of showed him how to do it. And one of the managers got in his grill and said, you know, that guy came in here for a toilet, and you sold him a you know, a little contraption. And ultimately, the, the, the genius of Bernie Marcus was getting at that manager to tell him, no, that guy did the right thing. Yeah, we didn't sell a toilet. and We could have made more money, but we earned a customer for life, silly man. We earned a customer for life. <laughs> and remember our values proposition. Remember it. And that must be a constant. Look, with our kids, we are constantly reinforcing them. And I think as adults, we need constant reinforcement. And a culture certainly does, Dina. Talk about that, not fight, but that, that habit of being that has to take place for culture to continue on. Well, we, as you said, everybody listening is a leader. If you influence anybody, you're a leader. And in our society today, we need everybody to step up and be the, the best leader that they can be to be better today than they were yesterday. And it's challenging themselves to really understand what are their values. Everybody's got a set of values. Write them down. In fact, I've got a, a free um, create Your Culture Workbook, Lee. If, if any of the listeners are interested, they can go to dinadwyerowens.com and download the Create Your Culture Workbook that will take them through six simple steps. I didn't say it was easy. Six simple steps because it takes a lot of thought to, to get your values clear and then come up with a system to keep your values front and center. And if everybody would do that, think about how this world would change. Um, and that could be the, the mother who is at home raising a, a family the the CEO who's running the, the, the Fortune 100 business. Yep, no doubt. And and by the way, it, it is not simple, but it can change your life. And and you you go into those family uh, situations. We'll see, we'll see a family that has these traditions, this culture that's passed down. It's very intentional, Dina. It takes it takes work, um, but great things come from it. I want to get uh, get some stories about your your personal life. Just uh, tell us a quirk. What you know, you, you've got some spare time. What is Dina Dwyer Owens like doing in her spare time? Oh, you're probably not going to believe this one, but my husband, for our anniversary last May, we're about to have our 27th this May, he bought us uh, mountain bikes. And we're in Waco, so you're thinking, what's a mountain bike going to do in Waco? But we've got this beautiful park called Cameron Park right down by our office in about 10 minutes from our home. And my, my husband did BMX bike racing when he was young, and he's just an athlete anyway. So he got us on these bikes, and we are, we are going through these blue trails, like skiing. You know, they've got the black yep. diamonds, they've yep. got the blue trails. And he, I am having such a blast. I don't make it up all the hills. I, I don't make it down all the hills with him either. I get off the bike and I walk occasionally. But each time we go, it's like I challenge myself to just make that corner. Make that corner without getting off the bike and walking it, or, or make that hill that's on the edge of the river without getting off the bike and walking it. And 
it's like being a kid again. It's so much fun. Oh, that's great. And mind, body, spirit is what we learned about from West Point and how they really worked on all three of those things on these young men. And my goodness, what an institution and what kind of leadership they pump out of there every year, Dina. It's remarkable. You've told us that you go to daily Catholic Mass and you're a busy person. Why do you do that every day? Oh, gosh, I need it. <laughs> I don't know. I had to get through my daily without it because it fills me up. At home, I'm really bad about getting quiet, and, and I do have a ritual in the morning when, when my husband and I are at the table. We listen to some uh, devotionals together, but to sit quietly and, and just read and study uh, the Bible, I find very difficult at home because I'm, I'm easily distracted. So I go to Mass. Like this morning, I went to an 8 o'clock Mass. Yesterday, I had a radio show, so I went to a 7.30 a.m. Mass, and there's no excuse. I can always find a daily Mass almost anywhere I am that I can go and get filled uh, with the Holy Spirit and focus on really what's most important in life. Um, and that's one of my values. In fact, faith is my number one personal value. Yeah, and we've found that from any number of our of our leaders, Dina, that they were able to serve others because they serve their God. Um, this, is a, this is a good starting point to lead a servant-based uh, leadership culture. Was there a teacher, Dina, that really had a profound impact on your life? Oh, you know, I would say my mother. Uh, again, my father raised me with a strong work ethic, and I'm so thankful for that. But my mother was the one who made sure that we were grounded in our faith at a very early age. And so even throughout high school my and college, my friends were like, oh, here we go again. Dina's going to make sure we go to church on Sunday. <laughs> no matter where we were, we, we would. So it's just uh, my, my mother's just strong conviction that uh, that was the most important thing. And she taught me things like being uh, kind to others and saying please and thank you and, you know, uh, never trying to assume what's going on in somebody's life, but always look at them with, wow, I wonder what's happening that would cause them to behave that way. Yep. So she, she's really blessed me with that. Well, and it teaches you compassion and empathy. And if you don't have those things, how can you have a servant-based culture? I mean, in the end, if you right. can't listen to people and walk in their shoes, how can you be a leader? I want to you know, end with one final uh, space, and that is not political, but just, you know, we talk to business leaders particularly about uh, regulations, about the state and the interaction with the business and the state. Talk about what, what it's like dealing with bureaucracies and what would make your, if you were talking to the President of the United States right now or the governor or whomever, what would you tell them that business owners need more of uh, to grow their businesses, to make them more profitable so they can hire more and they can pay their people more. Yeah, uh, of course, the, the, the answer that always comes to mind is less regulation. Uh, we've got so much burdensome regulation in the franchising world that it, it's, it's unfortunate because it's restricting uh, people who want to own their businesses from possibly getting into, into a franchise business, which is the most likely the safest way to get into your first business because the systems are there and the support is there. And, and I'm not afraid of the political side of things. Uh, Lee, I have to share with you that I've had the uh, – uh, things don't happen by accident. You know, I, I prayed for years that somehow Dwyer's values could affect what's going on in our government, and I've since worked with the highest-ranking woman in the House of Representatives, Kathy McMorris-Rogers. Um, she works right with Paul Ryan and the, the executive leadership yep. team there. She's now implemented uh, – her own core values and her organization uh, up on the Capitol after the last 15 months, and the stories are amazing that are coming out of her office because her team, her chiefs of staff, are now holding themselves and their team members accountable to the values. And my, my prayer is that that will ripple through all of Congress 
And I know it's a long time, a lot of evangelizing that has to be done, but you know what? you got to start somewhere, and it's our role as leaders not to just look from the, the, the outside as to what's happening in government and complain about it, but to get on the inside and do what we can to help it. You bet. And, you know, we in the end, no matter what you think of any political leader, you got to pray for them in the end because it, we are one country, and they've got, they're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with the media. They they're do. dealing with their constituents. And, my goodness, uh, sometimes I wonder why good people go into that line of work, and we want to continue to have our best and brightest go there. Dina, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for all you're doing with your with your folks, with the people you work with, and all the people and customers you impact. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. The story of Dina Dwyer Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, GetNeighborly.com, 2,800 franchisees worldwide, $1.4 billion in revenue, but most important, just a superb and good human being. Thank you, Dina, for all you do. Thank you, Lee. You bet. And this is our American stories, and we don't do politics, and we don't do hard talk. It's stories and only stories, and every once in a while, we do dip into the world of public policy, but only as it relates to storytelling. And we like to dip into the areas where things are working. You hear about what doesn't work every day. And so what we wanted to do today was continue our discussion we're having with you nationally about a subject that matters to us and to a lot of Americans, and that is prison reform. And you're getting an odd convergence of political allies. My, my dear friend and someone I've worked with over the years, Newt Gingrich and his team, and Van Jones are actually running around the country talking about this. And that's good. I like it when folks from the left and the right can actually agree on some things. Um, we're always told about what we don't agree on, and here on Our American Stories We'd like to beat a different path. And the state of Texas has been a pioneer in this space. And the red state of Texas leading the charge on prison reform. Our friends at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have been doing some great work. But it's on the ground with people like Judge Robert Francis, who's on the, on the line now, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Program and Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas. Judge Francis, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Happy to be here. Hey, before we even dig into the, the prison reform, Judge, tell us a little bit about your road to being a judge, because it's just so interesting to get the backgrounds of the people involved in these programs. Tell us a little about where you were from, your family background, and how you ended up where you are right now. Uh, well, it's kind of a long story, so I'll give you the short version. When I was a kid, I lived north of Austin near a little town called Pflugerville, Texas, uh, we moved to Dallas about uh, the end of my sixth grade year, and I grew up then in North Dallas. I went to Richardson High School. Uh, I got to go back to, to UT, so I went to University of Texas for undergrad and graduated from there. Uh, in all honesty, <clears throat> I did not have any plans of going to law school or ever being a judge, uh, but I couldn't find a job that I liked when I got out of school, so I ended up going to law school. Uh, when I got through with law school, I actually thought I'd probably go into oil and gas or real estate, 
But my family wanted me to come back to live in Dallas, so I interviewed here with uh, Henry Wade, who's uh, pretty well known. He was the DA in Dallas County at the time. And the next thing I knew, uh, I was a prosecutor in Dallas County. And so I, I spent um, five years as an assistant district attorney. Then I spent six years in private practice, basically being a defense attorney. Uh, got elected, and I've been a judge for about 20 years now. Well, you know, I, and, and I'm a recovering lawyer myself. I went to the University of Virginia <laughs> Law School. And it's interesting. I worked in a prosecutor's office for one summer and a defender's office in the other. And what I routinely saw it, it was, was people, some people not getting enough time, the hardcore rapist, the, the stone-cold bad guy. Um, sure. And, and some guys who were just what I called goofballs. They kept on just doing stupid stuff. They weren't tremendous harms to society. But as they were getting their second and third and fourth offense piled on, they were starting to get hard time piled on. As a judge, talk about life before your ability to have these courts, and especially and particularly mandatory minimums and and guidelines that sort of handcuff judges. Talk about the world before the world that we're about to talk about. Well, when, when I was a prosecutor probation was, it just didn't occur that often. If you were a first-time offender and you had a, a small drug case or a property crime, you were likely going to get probation. But if you messed up that probation by anything, I mean, I saw people that would be 15 minutes late to a probation meeting or test dirty one time for marijuana. Those guys were getting revoked and popped. And what happened is, even if you were not a violent offender, we have what we call enhancement paragraphs. And, and I don't have any argument that, that they're inappropriate, but sometimes they're used inappropriately. And what would happen is you'd get a, a final felony conviction, and then the next time you got in trouble, it would go from being a smaller case to a major case. And if you got two of those prior convictions, the punishment range was a minimum of 25 years up to 99 years or life. So it was not uncommon um, to see people with, with relatively small cases, and, and I say that, you know, when you compare it to aggravated offenses where somebody's sexually assaulted or hurt or murdered, and suddenly they were looking at a huge punishment range, and it was usually because they were an addict, and they didn't change their behavior because they were an addict, so they would get repeated drug cases or property crimes, and the next thing you knew, they were getting a whole lot bigger sentence than somebody who was violent who probably should be getting the bigger sentence. You bet, and I think that's what we're talking about. So folks here who are listening and wondering, going, guys, why are you talking about prison reform? Well, I think what we want to always try and sort out are those people that are real risks to society, and I mean the predators. And then those, the people who aren't risks to society, they're more risks to themselves. And I think every family in America now has somebody in their family who's an addict, who's possibly done some dumb, stupid stuff like steal stuff out of a store or or commit low-level larcenies to support their habit. Um, so talk about this, this dynamic tension and, and just about a minute here. And we come on the other side, we'll talk about the program, but the okay. judge is this ultimate arbiter, tremendous responsibility. You want to both protect society, but yet you want to be a human being and you want to not, sure. not make it impossible for people who are committing low level offenses to, to, to be members of society. Talk about that as a judge, how that weighs on you. Well, I, I think the, the advantage that younger judges have now is that actually the society we live in has changed their views. 
back 15, 16 years ago when I started doing this, the view was still pretty much lock them up and throw away the keys. So you were taking a risk by working with someone. I think that's changed now, and, that, and that's good because you can take the folks who don't represent a, a risk of danger, hurting somebody, and put them in a different program. Even the folks that I deal with are locked up for a certain period of time, but try to get them in rehabilitative treatment and see if you can change their behavior. And if you do, we've done a much better job in improving the world we live in than just locking somebody up and continuing to build bigger, more expensive prisons. You bet. And by the way, saving the taxpayers a lot of money too, though, I think that should always be the secondary position this is Lee Habib. We're talking to Judge Robert Francis, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas, leading the charge on prison reform in this great country. Again, we'll be back with more from Judge Francis after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We're continuing our conversation with Judge Robert Francis, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas. And Judge Francis, let's talk about, if we can, what the old reentry system for prisoners looked like before the new one. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think there really was one. Um, what happened was people got released from prison. Uh, they were given, I think, fifty dollars, uh, some clothes that were not new, and a bus pass to whatever their their home address was before they went in. And that was pretty much it. They had instructions to meet with their with their parole officer and follow up. But as far as some sort of reentry system like my court is, uh, designed to to get them through the first year to year and a half when they get out by providing them certain, uh, at least tips, uh, help, counselors, uh, job interviews, uh, the different skills that we try to provide them. That, that didn't really exist. The, the poor parole officers were just overloaded with how many people they had to deal with. And as, as hard as they would try to help, that, that wasn't going to happen when you had as many people getting released from prison because we have a huge prison system. Yep, yep. So they're constantly cycling in and out. You know, it's interesting. We just did an hour on Merrill Haggard, and we had a quote from Merrill Haggard talking about what it felt like. He said the loneliest days in his life were two to three days after he got released from prison because he had no idea where to go. Sure. what to do. He couldn't afford probation. His old friends didn't trust him because he was a, a, a criminal. No one would hire him. And in the end, he said, sometimes I wished I was back in the joint because at least I had a, an ecosystem I understood. Oh, uh, I deal with people that say that all the time, that, that it's, it's very hard work even with the help we give them to get through reentry, it's just easier to go back to prison where they understand. They said there's, the only worry about life in prison is the guy behind you. 
because your your bed is taken care of, your food's taken care of, your day's planned for you. They say when you're out here, I worry about everything. What am I doing next? As well as the guy behind me. Right. right. And in prison, it's easier to live. <laughs> it's easier to live. Let's talk about Texas. It's the Hangem High State. I mean, this is the Historically. place. Historically. <laughs> and, and, and yet today, look at what's happening. Tell us the story behind this remarkable, and some would even think, just crazy turnaround. Um, in 1989, the first drug treatment courts in America started. One was in Florida and one was in California, and I'll let them fight about who was actually first. And then what happened in Texas, uh, as we moved into the 90s, there were a couple judges, uh, Judge John Cruzo here in Dallas, one of my good friends, and his court was next door to mine, that kind of started drug treatment courts. And at the time, you were focused on first-time offenders with low-level offenses, the people that had the best chance of succeeding. And so I got involved with Judge Cruzo, helping him with his court, and decided I wanted to do the same thing. But we took on a different population, which was the reentry population, which was people who had been to prison probably three or four times before. Some of them have aggravated offenses, a very different population than first-time offenders with a low-level case. And the, the object was to see, would this same treatment protocol work with these folks? Could we do something with them? We had these, these what we call safe P units, treatment units in prison, where they were getting rehabilitative treatment, but we weren't getting the successful outcomes we wanted. It was better than nothing, but we weren't getting our money's worth. And once we added this reentry court, a follow-up for a year to a year and a half afterwards, our success rates, our people staying clean, staying out of prison, avoiding rearrest, new, avoiding new crimes, shot through the roof. And, and, and so it was just it was validated that we could take almost any offender and work with them and change their behavior over time. Now, you're not going to get 100%, but anything you get that's an improvement is a better bang for the taxpayer's buck. You know, for the folks listening, and I think there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who think that when we privatize the prisons, we were actually turning this into a hotel complex and a prison industrial complex, that there were incentives to incarcerate people, so sure. on and so forth. You know the line. I, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracist Absolutely. myself. But we do know that this was a tremendous cost to the people of Texas. And, and the incentives were, if anything, not exactly flowing in a proper direction. Talk sure. about how this has saved not only lives, Judge, uh, but how it saved the taxpayers tremendous amounts of resources. Well, you go back to about six years ago, um, Texas was looking at building two additional prisons. Now, the estimated cost for building those prisons, then staffing them and running them, was $2 billion. At that time, uh, Representative Madden went to the governor and said, you know, I, I, I've worked with Judge Francis, I've worked with Judge Cruzo, I've got some ideas on how we can approach this differently. Let's not build the prisons. Let's change the law to allow for more reentry and treatment courts and see what happens. So not only did we save the $2 billion on those prisons because we didn't build them, since that time we've actually closed three prisons. That has never happened in the history of the the state of Texas since 1845, nor in the history of the Republic of Texas since 1836. So you're talking, if two billions for new prison, probably shutting down the old ones easily, 
you know, $750 million a piece, if not more, you're looking at saving, you know, over $4 billion in expenditures that we can move to other things that are more important, like education, uh, health care, roads, in this state, water. Uh, it, it just has saved the taxpayer a tremendous amount of money and let us put our resources in other places that need those resources. And by the way, these are the very same men who were a drag on the economy, who may, who may and in all probability do because of your work, end up paying taxes and contributing to society, Judge. One well, of the even, things, one of the things I, that you're known for, and not just in Texas, is your demeanor with the participants in your program. <laughs> and Judge, we just got to play a little clip because it's so real. And I think in the end, it's in large part why you're effective. Let's take a listen. Sure, you're popping off and being a smart ass to pain in the butt. I'm going to solve that problem. I should be sending you to jail today. I figure you owe me and I won't forget it. I'm not your daddy. I'm not going to be there to wipe your butt, zip your britches up, tuck your shirt in every day, all right? You got to take care of yourself. If you tell me the truth and you show up, I'm happy to work with you. If you lie to me, treat me like a chump or run off, and we're going to have a problem, okay? This is tough, straight talk, and it's, uh, to me it sounds like what a military uh, command sergeant or, or, or a CO, how, the, the demeanor there with their folks, there's great respect but there's really good straight talk. Talk about why that is, and, and obviously it's just a part of your personality, but sure. why, why you adopt that to me? You wouldn't do this in a traditional court, let's just no. say. No. Um, I've had the advantages of, of, of parents that were married together their whole lives, that were educated, that ensured that I went to good schools, went to quality universities, got a decent education. It doesn't do me any good to eloquently pontificate in court and then have everyone that I'm speaking to raise their hand and say, Judge, I don't understand what you said. It's easier for me to say, damn it, get your act together, or I'm going to send your ass to prison. They understand that. But they also understand when I look at them and say, damn it, you did get your act together, and I'm so proud of you. I'm going to shake your hand, give you a hug, pat you on the back, and brag about you to anybody that wants to listen. And uh, Mr. Hodling's sitting here in my office. I, I think the fact that the participants understand what I'm saying. I'm very clear whether it's a, a positive, uplifting, inspirational message or a you need to get your act together or judgment day's coming message. Yep. It's, it's, you're, you're being a coach almost. It's, it's parenting. You've got to talk to folks where they can understand you and appreciate the fact that you're communicating with them in a way they can understand and they know you care about their success. I think that's dead right. And by the way, we did an hour on Coach Saban and we had some incredible moments where he's just tearing into his guys and they said sure. they've been Saban. They had a joke for it because they knew he loved him. He wanted the best out of him. And there were consequences if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. In a minute here, Judge, I wanted one last question. You've talked about sure. a defining moment you had with a 37-year-old black female at one of your graduations. Share yeah. us that story if you could quickly. Uh, the, 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 the short version of it is, is this woman uh, was about a 37-year-old black female. She had three children. Uh, the only job she'd ever had in her life was selling herself as a prostitute or selling dope. She never had all of her children together because CPS, Child Protective Services, was always taking them away because she was an unqualified parent. Yep. And after she went through treatment, after she went through court and she made changes, a couple things happened. One, she got a, uh, an apartment 
and she was very proud of the fact she paid for it herself with her earnings. She was working at McDonald's, and some people looked down on that job, but for her, she was proud of herself, and she was in management training. I mean, I couldn't have been prouder of her if she was my own child graduating from college. But because of the fact she had that job, she had tested clean for over a year, and she had a place to live, the absolute most important thing was she had her three children with her, and she was raising them as a parent should, in an appropriate, effective manner, raising them to be quality human beings. And when you see that... That's what you want. That's you the bet. success story I want. You bet. Judge Robert Francis, we want to continue this conversation. Head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas. Up next, one of the many, many inmates that the judges worked with. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we just spent a great two segments with Judge Robert Francis, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in Texas. And what a story. You know, we were commenting over the break that this is why people now want to be judges. For the longest time, a judge wasn't even a judge. He was handcuffed. He, he was putting people away for longer times than they should have. And some people that really should have been going away, he couldn't. And boy, what, why do you want to be a judge if you can't do your job? And with this kind of story, I'm sure people listening are going, well, maybe being a judge, well, I can really help people, and I can protect the public at the same time. And by the way, what we wanted to do now was shift to one of the recent graduates of this program, and there are graduates of this program, and that brings us to James Hodling, and he has recently graduated from Judge Francis's program. James, congratulations, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. You bet. Let's talk about, and I always do this with everybody who ever comes on our show, where were you born? born? Tell us about your parents. Tell us about your early life. Well, I was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and uh, I was uh, one of four children. My mother had four boys, and I, I never had a father. And I grew up on a farm, just living living life and then i lost my mom at 13 so i ended up being bounced around from family member to family member for three or four years and then so at 17 or 18 what happens next james well i had dropped out of school gone to work had my own apartment i hadn't been mixed up in drugs at the time uh it wasn't until i so I started hanging around with people I shouldn't have been hanging around with now that I realize. And, and you know, to what degree do, do you attribute a lot of this? I mean, if, you had, if your mom and dad were around, uh, you think this would have happened, James? No, I don't think so. Yeah, and, and we hear this over and over again, James, and it's just, uh, I think it's one of the tragedies of, of the country. But by the way, there are lots of people with solid two-parent families that drugs get a hold of, too. But it sounds to me like you sort of stumbled into this life with some bad choices with bad friends and with the right I, kind of parents. You might not, that might not have happened. For, for my upbringing until I went out on my own, I was brought up as a 
to be respectable to others, and that's how you'll get respect back. And and tell me this: When did you first dabble with drugs? What was the first time? What was the first time you remember ever had done drug? What drug was it? And what did you what did you end up using as you as you got older? Well, I had tried marijuana when I was in my early teens, thirteen, fourteen, and I didn't much like it, so I didn't do anything until after I was eighteen. It was actually closer to twenty years old, and I started mixing with uh, alcohol and cocaine and methamphetamine, and I, I was just dabbling on it on weekends and stuff like that when I wasn't working. And then later on down the road, I was introduced to crack cocaine, and it took a hold of me pretty good. And methamphetamine took me hold of me pretty good. I stopped working. I just started committing crimes to support my habit. I was homeless. I was homeless for almost 20 years. And what kind of crimes was this mostly, James? Describe that kind of activity for us and for the audience. Oh, at the time, it was just petty shoplifting, uh, uh, buying booze for other minors, things like that. Nothing real heavy until I started getting a little bit older. In my mid-20s, I was arrested for sale of a counterfeit substance to an undercover officer, and I did some time for that. But nothing violent in terms of, uh, you know, harming other people or, or anything like that? No, I, I I didn't get an aggravated case until I was like in my thirties when I was living here in Texas. And so let's talk about you know. So you get what what's the aggregate amount of prison time? What's the amount of prison time you did in your young life? How many times were you in and out of the uh, of the system? Oh my lord! Uh, I have uh, nine felonies. I have several misdemeanors in Massachusetts that I went to, that I went to and did jail time for, and a felony that I had done jail time for. I was locked up in county jails mostly. As a matter of fact, I got my GED when I was locked up in a county jail in Massachusetts. And so, what? What? And by the way, the other question I always like to ask people: so, for the amount of times you got caught, how many crimes did you actually commit? I'm mostly larceny. What do you think that that looked like? Um, just as a as a as a way of life, what would you guess? Well, I I didn't get caught near as much as I had done the crimes. Right. I think that if I was caught a little earlier in age, more often, that would that I would probably be out of it by now. Right. And or ha- locked up in the penitentiary forever. Yeah, I have a young guy I had mentored, and he he actually had the same problem. He said. Man, I was just a little too good. I wish I'd gotten caught more. Um, yep, me too. Yep, you too. So you, you, how do you get to Texas, uh, James? How, what brings you from Massachusetts to Texas? How does that happen? Well, I was married, and I separated from my wife. I was taking care of my daughter on my own for almost two years, and then the crack got a hold of me again, and I just called her mother and had her come get the baby, and I ran away to Texas. I didn't tell anybody where I was going or anything. As a matter of fact, I just recently spoke with my brother after not speaking to him for 15 years. I didn't contact anybody. And how did that how did that go? And I, I this this life away from your family, you know, what did this, you know, what did this do to you emotionally, psychologically because you knew you were doing the wrong thing, but what else was there to do? Right. I didn't want to be a burden 
to have them love and care for me and me be such a mess up like I was. And so what, what the heck, just let's get out of their lives, let them move on without me, and hopefully that's the best answer. That was your thinking, I guess. It was my thinking, and my daughters, I have two of them. I have a 16-year-old, and I have a 24-year-old. And uh, they both said that, one of them said that she was glad that I chose, that I, I chose, she wasn't glad that I wasn't in her life, but she was glad that I chose not to bring my criminal addictive cycle and uh, my drug use into her life. She said she has respect for that. I, I, I talked to her earlier this afternoon, and uh, she just said she she just says that she was proud of me for that. And uh, now that I'm cleaned up, I've been out of jail for more than a year. With no, I don't have to look over my shoulder for anything. And the four C courts, they uh, the program's been great to me. Let's talk. You've been sober for two years. And yes. talk about that, if you could. Well, my first part of the sobriety was being incarcerated. I could have had uh, drugs. You know, I could have smoked marijuana or stuff and stuff like that, but I just chose not to. I just, I had a feeling that, I, it's something I used to tell all my drug friends, that it was coming to an end. And when it does, I'm either going to be dead or I'm going to be living free from my own self. I, I was in my own prison for a long time. Well, James, you hold that thought. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the program itself, what it's okay. done for you, and let's talk about the, your future because I think this is what's so exciting. Uh, you've almost got, you've got a new shot, and it's, my goodness, isn't that what we all root for and hope for with anybody who's made some wrong decisions because, my goodness, there before the grace of God go so many of us or any members of our family who are vulnerable, and, my goodness, to have lost a mother and a father, it just increases the risk. This is Lee Habib. James Hodling, graduate of the Texas 4C Prisoner Reentry Program, and we love talking about these things because, well, nobody else is, and it's important. And for the families listening here who have somebody tied up in the system or who have problems with drugs, we hear you, we hear you, and we care. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for this hour, we're dealing with one particular program, the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in Texas. We love to talk about things that work. Judge Robert Francis's court in particular. We're going to be following this gentleman. What a great American story, and what a heart. What a heart for people. And one of the people he's helped, James Hodling. And to be able to do something like this for another human being, uh, is just wonderful, and I'm sure that James is grateful. We're all grateful, both to Judge Francis and to James, for giving him for giving himself a real shot. 
And I think too often in life when you've made enough bad decisions, you actually just quit on yourself because nobody believes in you. And what did that mean to you, James, to actually have somebody who actually gave a damn and who believed in you and wanted the best for you? What did that mean to you as a human being? Uh, I know that I couldn't look at myself in the mirror for a long time trying to find something to feel good about myself, to want to move forward instead of always falling behind and going backwards and going back down to the penitentiary. And when I got out, I got out in April of um, 2015, and I was appointed to go to the 4C court, and I came here, and the judge was speaking one that my second day here, and he had said that... uh, he had called called on me, and I said yes. And I said, and I'm not going to be here very long because this isn't for me. And he asked me just take a look at it and see what's going on. And between him and Miss Franco, my counselor at the time, she uh, helped helped me realize that these people do care about me. And it just wasn't smoke in the wind, and you know, it just they. Uh, they generally care about the people that they help here, and I haven't had I haven't had somebody in authoritative figures look at me and not belittle me ever in myself ever ever in my life. But before now, with uh, the judge, he is just he's he's great. He's like a father to me that I never had. He 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 lets us know what we're, when we're doing good. He lets us know when we're doing bad. Uh, I remember one day, and specifically in court, that uh, the judges said uh, 45% of the people are messing up and this and that and this and that. And he was really upset and hurt over it because he tried so hard for each and every one of us. And I had raised my hand and I told him, I said, Judge, I said, you're you're upset about the 45% of the people that are messing up and not doing good. I said, but there's uh, 55% of the people that are doing good that want this program and I said and you shouldn't shouldn't be so hard on yourself over it and uh it was it was definitely one of my better days <laughs> good and for I've, you and by and, the way he needs reinforcement and encouragement too he's got a tough job and uh it, you know being the encourager but yet being the guy who's got to be the disciplinarian too you're right when you say he's a father figure being a dad is not an easy job all of us who are dads know my goodness sometimes we got to lay into our kids and we don't want to but we have to but we've got to always encourage them we got to give them that unconditional love you had mentioned by the way james that you had talked about two things that had stopped the drugs one was you got in the you know you were in the joint you you, you chose not to what was the other thing that made you stop you said there were two uh wanting to be back in my family's life. I mean, I absolutely abandoned my whole family for 15 years. And it was that was the wrong thing for me to do. Uh, but I wasn't going to be able to do it until I could get sober. So what did now, you what did you have to do to change your life so that you you could succeed with Judge Francis? Talk about that that change you had to make in your own life. Well, I had to I had to learn to take a look at that guy in the mirror and figure out for myself that there, that I was worth something. I have never felt like 
well, no, I can't say never, but because now I do. But in the past, I never felt like I was good for anything or worthwhile for anything. But now, now from the program, they recognize me. They gave me a gold star for the thing because I was doing right. There, there's rewards, and there, there's rewards when you do right. You usually get them when you're growing up. I didn't get those rewards when I was growing up because I was forced to grow up a little bit too soon, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Judge Francis's court, though, James, is no picnic. He's tough. He's a no-nonsense guy. He cusses. He gets into your face. By the way, it reminds me a lot of great coaches because they do the yeah. same. What did you think about that when you first saw this this man getting in your grill? What was your gut reaction? Well, he, didn't, he never got in mine, but... I've seen him get in people's, and then and then he'll put them in jail for four days or three days or ten days or whatever it may be, and then when they come back, he he has general concern for the person because because one of his things are are you on the back, are you back on the right track and every time that I've seen people go to jail and come back, they always get back on the right track, but. They don't all all make it. I, I can't say that I've seen everybody make it because there was somebody I was praying that would make it, and he didn't. Yep. Well, and that's that's a that's a tragedy. But that that so many people are James is really really remarkable things. You've turned your life around. Talk about some of your new milestones, then, and some milestones you're shooting for, James. Well, I've got. Some health issues with my extensive drug use. I've beat myself up enough. I have to get. I have to get a heart surgery and stuff like that. But I'm going to be good through all that. And I never. If I didn't have the this program, I would never even be considering a, to have the surgery done. I wouldn't even think about it because I'd be living a whole different life than I live right now. And talk about your living situation. How are you living now? What are you? What are your hopes and dreams in the in the coming months, years, and maybe even decades, James? Well, now I I live in a little apartment. I, like I said, I don't. I I'm I'm not working right now. I have to get help assistance from the state and taxpayers' money. But my future goal is to. Uh, Get my own business, doing one of two, one of two things, either lawn care or uh, remodeling work. It, I just don't. I don't. I want to become productive instead of neglected. Ne- instead of being not a productive member of society, I want that. I don't want to be looked on and, and frowned on anymore because it makes me feel better when I'm looked at and people smile and say, "Look what he's doing." And they do that more now. They say, look what Jim's doing. He's doing great. Well, we're doing that right now, Jim, and you are doing great. Talk about that that, that family of yours now, because remember you just said to us, you stopped the drugs because you wanted to get back to your family. What What's going on there now? How do you reenter that family life? How do you gain the trust of your, of your, of your family, James? Uh, I'm not too sure. I just, I have conversations and stuff like that. I have, I have conversations with my brothers on the phone and my two daughters, my brother's ex-wife's talked to me once. And it's, it's hard because I feel like I'm talking to strangers. Yep. Yeah. But 
I also know that I'm talking to my family because they remember things. Well, the good news is, James, over the next year, two years, five years, you can get to know them better. Um, I'm going to get to know them real. Yes, I am. And that's a beautiful thing. James, what would you want in the final thoughts here as we close out this segment? What would you want folks listening to the show to know right now? Folks who haven't met you and other people, and particularly people who've just, you know, we're not talking about the, the hardcore, and I worked in a, in a prosecutor's office, and I dealt with sex crimes unit, and there were some people who just kept doing really, really bad things to people. This is not the case with you. You were, in the end, I think, really doing some bad things to yourself and your right. family. Talk of, Let our audience have an understanding of, uh, if they had had some time with you, what would you share with them just personally, James? Well, if it was the younger part, younger people to me, I would say to, to take a real good look at what they're doing now, because if you if you continue on what you're doing in 20 years, you can end up in a position to where it's almost next to impossible to do anything. Yep. I couldn't, for example, I couldn't get an ID for the longest time because of the 9-11 laws had changed and my birth certificate didn't, didn't match my criminal name. And I just wanted an ID back, and well, that's another thing that Forsey helped me get that. Um, the public defender drafted a letter, and I took it to the, and the judge signed it, and I took it to the uh, DMV, and they gave me an ID. And it, I haven't had one since 2008. Well, these are good stories, James, and your your life story is an inspiration. Hang in there with your family. Um, they're going to get to know you and you're going to get to know them and, and just thank you so much for being honest, for being so direct with us, James, and let's stay in touch. We want to keep track of your life. Maybe one day we have you and that daughter of yours on the air together to talk with our, with our, with our country and, and, and give that sense of hope for people who also have family members in this same space who are still in prison. You know, I think people need hope in the end, James, and without it, my goodness, life is really difficult. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. We spoke to a judge who's doing great things. We talked to an ex-con who's getting his life together. This is Our American Stories, and we like to do what nobody else is doing and share with you the stories no one else is sharing. And to hear more, go to ouramericannetwork.org.